Hello, I'd like to welcome everybody to another episode of my White Collar Crime and Fraud podcast. As usual, I'm a little bit late in um, publishing this podcast. I do apologize for that. Uh, work has been very, very demanding, and so I unfortunately just haven't had the time to get to this. I think I mentioned at the very beginning of my first fought podcast that I like to try and publish once every two weeks. Sometimes, unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way. So I would like to welcome everyone, however, to our latest episode. Um, when I began this podcast series, I always mention that it's sort of a, well, I hate to use the term fly by night, but let's, say, let's just say there's no really unique theme to it, except that we will talk only about white collar crime and fraud. That is to say, I'm interested in obviously the legal aspects since I am an attorney, the criminal aspects, once again, that attorney thing, the psychological aspects, the victims, the victims of white collar crime and fraud. There's really no end to the various multifaceted layers of white collar crime and fraud. But today we're going to take a little bit of a leap into something that um, I find just absolutely fascinating. And we're going to talk about how an entire nation fell victim to white collar, basically an entire pyramid scheme. And it not only collapsed the nation's economy, but it led to a civil war. And I think it's an important lesson, not only in terms of just how far a fraudulent scheme can go, but also a bit of a history lesson as to how an entire population can fall victim to a white collar, a fraudulent scheme, in this case, a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme. The um, the nation I'm talking about is the nation of Albania. Uh, for those who don't know, Albania is a small nation in the Balkans area of Europe. It's bordered by Greece to the south and uh, Serbia, Kosovo to the west and, uh, I'm sorry, to the east and uh, Montenegro to the north. It is, uh, and, um, it is a small nation, as I said. It has a long history, a very unique language. Albanian language is an Indo-European language. It makes it distantly related to English, French, Russian, all the other Indo-European languages, but it's, it is unique. Um, Albania has sort of the also unique history, if you want to call it that, um, tragic history of between 1944 and 1991. It was ruled by the Communist Party of Albania, and the dictator of, during this time period was a man named Yenver Hoxha, and to any Albanian speakers out there, I do apologize. I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but um, I, unfortunately, I do not speak Albanian. Um, even by the standards of Soviet and East European communism, Albania was a very, very repressive nation. Um, for example, in 1966 or 67, I can't remember exactly which year, it became the only nation in history to that I'm aware of anyway, to outright ban religion. That is to say that all forms and practices of religion were banned. Albania is a mainly Muslim country. About 70% of the population is Muslim. Another uh, 20% is uh, Orthodox Christian, and the remaining 10% is Catholic. Um, but during this time period, all forms of religion were banned. The uh, secret police, um, I'm, unfortunately, I don't know the term for it in Albanian, had a very heavy hand in enforcing these very, very hostile decrees. And Albania was pretty much a closed nation in many ways similar to North Korea during this time period. And during the thaw of the late 80s, early 90s, um, Albania became one of those countries that overthrew its communist um, government and installed a democracy. 
And like any new democracy, of course, it does have issues. And we're going to start talking about um, the time period in the mid to late 1990s when, as I said, the uh, entire country fell victim to pyramid schemes, which caused a civil war. Um, one of the issues of living under communism is that most People who live under communism are not exposed to market forces. They're not educated as to how the markets work, how investing works, or anything like that. Supposedly, in theory, anyway, everything is taken care of by the state. So there's no free markets in a strictly communist form of government. There are no free markets. Everything is run by the state. And so um, individuals are not really taught about how markets work, how investments work. And when countries fall apart, such as Albania, when their communist system of government falls apart, you have a large number of the numbers of the population who simply do not understand or know how a free market is supposed to work. I saw this myself. Uh, I lived in Russia throughout the um, early 1990s, and I saw myself how large numbers of the population simply had no idea how a free market worked, how to do investments or anything like that. Many Russians fell prey to um, pyramid schemes and other fraudulent schemes because they simply had no idea how to anticipate them, how to look for uh, the telltale signs of a fraud, that sort of thing. Um, but Albania, as I said, was um, a little bit uh, a little bit different in that it, because it was so closed off from the outside world for you know a large number, um, about 50 years from 1944 to 1991, the population was even um, in uh, even worse shape to determine how. Uh, investments work, how um, fraud schemes work, that sort of thing, because they simply had no education in this. Now let's back up for a minute. Let's talk about what is a pyramid scheme. Um, a pyramid scheme is one of the oldest form of uh, um, uh, fraud that exists, pyramid scheme, Ponzi schemes. And simply put, um, a pyramid scheme is a business model that recruits members. It gets in members by promise of payments or services for enrolling others in the, into the scheme rather than supplying investments or products. So let's, for example, if you get, um, uh, if you're at the top of the pyramid, then money is flowing towards you. So if you get 10 people in the scheme, um, then these 10 people have to get 100 people to pay them money. Then these 100 people have to get 1,000 people to pay them money. So you see how it works. A thousand people are paying up into the hundred people. The hundred people are paying up into the 10 people, that sort of thing. So it's really impossible for a pyramid scheme to have any long-term um, long possibility of success simply because eventually you weren't on a people. So a, py a pyramid scheme is where basically you have to recruit people into the pyramid scheme and they have to pay money up and people below them have to pay money up as well. So wherever you are in the pyramid scheme, the higher you are, the more money you're going to get. Um, a Ponzi scheme is very similar to a pyramid scheme. The only difference is that a Ponzi scheme is basically a form of fraud where people believe that um, they are actually earning money from investments when it's actually the same thing. Um, new investors are coming into the scheme and these new investors are bringing money in, which is paid up into the scheme. So once again, if they're, if you're in a Ponzi scheme, the higher up you are in this pyramid, the more money you're going to make. So if you have uh, 10 people involved then you have these 10 people have to get a hundred people involved. So once again, the 10 people say to the people below them, okay, you have to pay $5 to be part of the scheme. Investment, excuse me, and these five people, these hundred people, 
these 10 people at the top will get the $5 that were paid in. Then these 100 people have to find 1,000 new investors to pay the $5 in, that sort of thing. So it's a completely unstable and fraudulent method of, um, of uh, investments. They are illegal, certainly in the United States. And um, as a result, um, it is considered a crime. But um, pyramid schemes, as I said, have been around for a long time. And um, Ponzi schemes are from the, in, well, inventor, discoverer, certainly the most well-known person, Charles Ponzi, who created one. But the latest example, or one of the, the worst examples of a Ponzi scheme was, of course, Bernie Madoff, who had an entire investment company running for decades where the only thing that was happening was the new investors were coming in, paying money into the investment scheme, into the investment investment house, in this case, Madoff's investment house. Madoff was taking the money to pay off people at um, further at the top of the pyramid, but you always need that new supply of investors. So um, once again, pyramid schemes, Ponzi schemes are illegal. They're, um, they cannot last forever simply because you're going to run out of people to invest. The pop there's no, even with our population growth, there's not enough people on the earth to keep a pyramid scheme going. But let's move forward. Since we have a basic understanding now that of a pyramid scheme or Ponzi scheme, how does this affect Albania? Well, as I said, um, Albania was ruled by the communist gov its communist government until about 1991. In 1992, the Democratic Party of Albania won the nation's first free elections, and an individual named Sali Berisha became president. And once again, for an Albanian speaker who's listening, I apologize for my my probable mispronunciation. And um, he, Sali Berisha, attempted to um, adopt a market economy um, into Albania. Because once again, um, communism is basically a command economy, and people wanted um, people. The governments of Albania, Eastern Europe, the former Soviet Union, were trying market economy to uh, open their markets to the outside world. And um, unfortunately, with the opening of uh, these pyramid schemes, I should say almost immediately when the government was liberalized, when communism was overthrown, pyramid schemes began. Because once again, there really uh, was no, there really is no blueprint as to how do you go from communism to a market economy. When communism fell apart, um, there are many, many, many people surprised, including people in the State Department, the White House, for example. Nobody expected that uh, there would ever, communism would ever fall apart like that so quickly. So immediately you had criminal organizations or individuals that started to set up pyramid schemes in Albania. Um, it's recorded that probably the first scheme was from an individual named Hajdin Seydisho, um, who started, he called an investment company. People would invest into his company. And just like any pyramid scheme, um, the people at the top got paid off, the people at the bottom um, got paid off, were putting money into the scheme, but eventually the there was not enough people to keep the scheme going. Um, and eventually, um, hundreds of thousands of Albanians were drawn into these schemes simply because, well, once again, there's many reasons for it. Um, a pyramid scheme, one of the, one of the nice things about the pyramid schemes, if you're at the top is you make a lot of money very quickly. So if you can get a hundred people to invest a thousand dollars into your in scheme, well, now you have, um, hundred people investing a thousand dollars and you can make money quite easily. And then these, of course, these thousand people need 10,000 people to invest whatever, $100, and to keep the scheme going. So for many people, and once again, I have to reiterate this, for many people in Albania, this seemed 
almost like a godsend where you suddenly have a free market and suddenly you're making money. People that are investing in these schemes are making money very, very quickly. And it seems like a great deal. Um, the, uh, it seems like these market economies or so what Albanian sour market economies were taking off. And once again, because uh, this country had lived in such a very closed and confined environment in such a command economy run by the communist government, they had no idea that something might be off if suddenly um, you're earning, you're an investment fund or something calling itself an investment fund that's earning a great deal of money. Well, with all these investment funds, of course, sooner or later, they, they went broke. Um, and according to the records that we have or we've seen, um, between 1994 and 1997, these schemes proliferated. And finally, in January of 1997, these schemes collapsed. And suddenly you had hundreds of thousands of people that had lost their entire life savings, if not more, um, in these schemes. And when they collapsed, uh, the government, once again, this is in January of 1997, um, the government of Albania closed many of these firms, these investment firms, which were in nothing more than pyramid schemes. And um, this, of course, caused mass confusion and misunderstanding. Once these uh, schemes collapsed and people realized, Albanian citizens realized they had lost so much money, it didn't take long for demonstrations to start. And in, once again, in January of 1997, in the capital city of Tirana, um, demonstrations began to occur against one of these investment schemes. And by the end of January, um, there were protests in other cities in Albania, such as of Lora. And of course, with these kind of with these kind of demonstrations and with so much confusion as to what was going on, um, many times the government, this the new, for lack of for the new democratic government of Albania, was blamed as to what's going, what actually happened. And beginning in February, um, in of 1997, these um, demonstrations became even more open and more. Um, I should, I guess, violent is the correct word. Um, in February of 1997, students at the University of Lora, uh, once again in Albania, began a hunter, hunger strike, and they demanded that uh, the money, the invested money, be returned. And um, then, in towards the end of February of 1997, um, there were even more demonstrations in various cities against um, against what many Albanians saw as uh, these conspiracies or these criminal schemes which had robbed them of their monies. And what happened next, unfortunately, is very tragic. Uh, beginning in March and April of 1997, um, many weapons depots were raided by citizens, and um, these arms were taken, firearms were taken. And I'm not just talking about handguns. We're talking about military-grade equipment, such as submachine guns, hand grenades, um, some ammunition for these submachine guns, that sort of thing. And uh, once again, uh, I want to make the this little historical note in here, during the time when Yenver Hoxha and the Albanian Communist Party reigned in Albania, um, I think it's safe to say that Yenver Hoxha was a very paranoid and disturbed individual who was always always believed that um, uh, other countries are going to attack Albania for. And in relation to this, he had very for in relative in terms of the population, a very large army. And Albania is also noted as uh, having built bunkers across the country, something like hundreds of thousands of these bunkers to repel an invasion. 
which of course never came. But what I'm trying to point out here is that um, many Albanians had received some sort of weapons training and they knew where these weapons were. And so when the, it was, uh, then it was very, uh, perhaps easy is too strong a word, but it wasn't that difficult to seize these arms depots and uh, take the arms that the weapons that were there. And many times this um, resulted in uh, not only um, shooting between various groups, but um, actual tragic explosions. For example, um, in, at the end of April in 1997, um, an explosion occurred in the city of uh, Burrell when um, an armory went up in flames. Um, in April as well, um, the Albanian state treasury was raided by armed groups, and this also included um, uh, armed groups that raided not only um, the treasury in the city of Karabjo, and once again, my apologies, but also um, northern state treasuries in, for example, the city of Shkodjor. So um, by this time, by April of 1997, basically a civil war had broken out across the country. And the United Nations actually did get involved to try and put a stop to this. Um, there were several countries that intervened into, basically um, sent soldiers to Albania to um, try and stop this violence. Uh, countries involved, for example, were Greece, Italy, Romania, Turkey, Austria, France, Germany, and the United States. And... Um, to prevent these situations from getting out of control, these troops did come in there and put a stop to it. So um, the uh, by the time um, all this was done, however, uh, these four months of complete chaos, um, the, and by the way, it did not stop in April. Um, the the uh, um, civil, for lack of a better term, the civil war, the civil disturbances continued in May, June, July, and August of uh, that year as well. So basically from January until July of 1997, um, this war began, a civil war, civil disturbances began in Albania, precipitated by the loss of, uh, fun of investment funds and the loss of personal savings of hundreds of thousands of Albanians. And according to um, statistics, according to um, historians, about 2,000 people were killed. And these were killed in... Um, these people were killed not only from ammunition, the ammunition depots blowing up the example I gave earlier, but shooting between gang members and um, armed militias. So you have a situation here where a country really fell apart because of Ponzi schemes, because of pyramid schemes. It's uh, quite a unique issue in history. I'm not really sure of any other country where this occurred, certainly not in the 20th century. Um, now, of course, we had economic issues in the 20th century as well, the Great Depression, um, that sort of thing, which, among other things, led to a worldwide collapse of financial markets. It also gave rise such mar such events gave rise to the Nazi Party, of course, and various other fascist and communist parties. However, it's important to note that um, what made all the situation in Albania unique was historians can pinpoint exactly that it was because of these um pyramid schemes, which ate up so much money and up so many of the life savings of ordinary individuals. And by the way, many of these people who lost their money lost everything. And the criminal gangs that took the money in these pyramid schemes, a lot of them took the money to other countries. I think it's safe to say some of these, some of this money ended up possibly in Swiss bank accounts or other overseas accounts. 
So this is really the first time when we have a situation where a white collar fraud scheme, because pyramid schemes and Ponzi schemes, of course, are pretty much the very definition of white collar fraud, um, where pyramid schemes and Ponzi schemes actually caused the collapse of a government, in this case, Albania. And this led to um, an actual shooting war for seven to eight months in the country, which caused no end of chaos, no end of um, social unrest and breakdown. And it actually had to invo involved um, a situation where <clears throat> other countries had to get involved to stop the um, internal violence of, the, of Albania so that it wouldn't spread to other countries or at least cause um, issues with other countries. So I mentioned this, I bring this up in this episode for a couple of reasons. First of all, I find it fascinating. Um, those of you who know me know that my parents and my family are from are refugees from communism. So um, I've always heard stories growing up of what happens in communism. So although I never experienced it myself, I do, under, I do understand in a secondhand way command economies and how they work. And for people growing up in these command economies, simple things such as how do investments work, how do savings work, how do, what, is it, what are the signs of a white collar crime, what are the signs of a fraud? People just aren't used to seeing that because um, they don't have the opportunity to study because it just doesn't exist or it doesn't exist out in the open where you can study it. So for a country like Albania and the citizens of that country, which were trapped in this um, very, very rigid societal controlled country, um, controlled by, as I said, Yenver Hoxha and his uh, Albanian Communist Party, um, when the markets opened up, you had millions of people. I think Albania has a population or had a population back then of about 3 million. You had millions of people that really were suddenly thrust into a new world and they didn't know what to expect. And furthermore, once again, I, I saw this living in Russia in the 90s when these countries fall apart and suddenly people are introduced to uh, market economies such as those existing in the United States, in Western Europe, in Japan, and they see what they consider to be absolute luxury and the ability of people to make a lot of money, they many people are still unsure of how that happened. How do countries, how do individuals in these countries make money? So they're thrust into a world they don't understand, number one. Number two, they're surrounded by images of people and countries where they believe that uh, capitalism, free markets are working, and they want, be, they want to have that lifestyle as well. And of course, there's nothing wrong with it. So in Albania, these, these two factors um, led to the ability of criminal gangs to use Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes really to rip off hundreds of thousands of people, as I said. And in a country like Albania, the situation in Albania was especially tragic because so many people lost their life savings that um, many people blamed the government uh, for what happened. And this led to the civil unrest, which occurred, which um, took place over a period of about seven months. And when it all died down, of course, eventually things got back on track. Um, I don't really know the situation in Albania today, um, um, but it is considered to be a, a market economy, a relatively free economy. And I haven't heard anywhere, certainly there's no indication that there's massive civil unrest that of the kind that occurred in 1997. So I wanted to bring this out here because I said at the very beginning of my podcast, and the reason I'm doing this podcast is I like to share my interest in fraud and white-collar crime and how it bleeds over into different areas of society. And here's a perfect example of an extreme example, I will grant you, 
but a perfect example of how unchecked fraud and unchecked white collar crime can really have massive societal impacts. In this case, it literally brought down the government of a country. It cost the lives of 2,000 people, and it created a situation of complete chaos in a country where it got to the point where other countries had to intervene to put a stop to it. And it, uh, as I said, it's an unusual set of circumstances, but it goes to show that fraud and white-collar crime goes beyond simply the victims of the direct victims of these schemes. Um, of course, when people lose their money, when people lose their life savings, when people lose their investments, it's always a tragedy. I mean, don't get me wrong. On an individual basis, people are hurt. But it's not just the direct victims of fraud and white-collar crime schemes that suffer. Um, there are ripple effects which branch out, which can, in some cases, in extreme cases, like the one I, we've been talking about for the, in this episode regarding Albania, where entire countries can feel it. And when... Um, in this case, when the Albanian the citizens of Albania lost trust in their government for whether it was correct or incorrect, believing that the, uh, fr the uh, fraudulent schemes that were perpetrated upon them were the fault of the government, well, it, as I said, it led to the collapse of the government and to this kind of violence which tore the country apart. And I think it's worthwhile to speculate what would have happened if uh, the other countries surrounding it, if Western European countries and Eastern European countries, for that matter, decided not to intervene in the situation in Albania and just let things spiral out of control, what would have happened then? Well, fortunately, we don't have to ask that question because in this case, the outside intervention was able to prevent uh, full-scale war. So um, we're going to end this episode just uh, with that little note indicating that even in, in some situations, sometimes... We don't know how far a, a white-collar scheme or a fraud scheme will go and how, what the ripple effects will be. But it is important to note, of course, that if it reaches a point where the general populace loses faith in the government, well, unfortunately, we have an example of what we can expect when that happens. So I'd like to thank everybody very much for listening to uh, this latest podcast. I certainly hope you've enjoyed it. As usual, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me. My website is www.tausklawfirm.com. My email address is gene at tausklawfirm.com. I welcome all comments and constructive criticism. And of course, if anybody has any ideas regarding a future podcast, please let me know. I'll be happy to consider them. I uh, wish everyone the best. Take care.